empowered by the Constitution, strengthened by the Bill of Rights, the American citizen was bestowed with the power and responsibility of civic engagement. Today, your voice is needed now more than ever, yet barriers stand in the way. How to start, where to begin, it can be confusing and overwhelming. We're here to help you take that leap, breaking down those barriers, providing you with the tools and knowledge to take on civics undaunted. I'm very excited today to talk with my friend, Jen Windato. Jen is the strategic sourcing manager at an aerospace company and serves in numerous roles as a volunteer leader for Delta Sigma Pi. And she is also a board member of the Civics Institute. I've known Jen for almost 10 years, and I wanted to have her on the show to show how you can create change within an organizational structure. One thing that is important to teach is that civic engagement doesn't just mean within your physical communities that you live. In fact, it can be present in every community you are a part of. Jen is a tireless worker, a world traveler, and has a consistent ability to be able to disrupt the status quo and push organizations forward. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Jen, welcome to Civics Undaunted. Thanks so much, Patrick. I'm super excited too. Like I love that we're working together for the Civics Institute. I can't wait to see what we're going to do. Uh, before we start, I just want to put out there that everything here, views are my own and not reflective of my employer, the organizations I'm affiliated or other associations. Uh, I, what you're saying is right. I can't believe we've known each other almost 10 years now. And um, I'm glad you've been able to see a lot of the stuff that um, I've done in the community. I do want to say shout out, like you're, you've been part of that journey too in helping me get there. So like, I'm happy to see that this is what it's come to. Thank you so much. What I want to start off with is just kick it over to you for a little bit of personal story, you know, introduce yourself to the listeners. And then, of course, our perennial first question, what does civic engagement mean to you? All right. So, Patrick, you covered a few of the titled roles that I have in my career in my volunteering. So uh, other things that are important just to my identity and how I get involved in the things that I do. I'm a first generation Chinese American uh, college graduate. I'm in my master's degree program for my MBA, my MS in organizational psychology, which you'll hear a little more about as we talk today. Uh, other just fun things before we get into uh, talking about civic engagement too. Avid foodie, like I will tell you all about all the food I had growing up in Connecticut and how to, I, I personally can make the pitch on why Connecticut is such a great place to live and people believe me and it is true. Uh, I'm married to my husband of what we've been dating for over nine years and uh, we live in Connecticut now. We've been married for three months uh, and I just love benefiting my community and like it's funny because when people ask me what my hobbies are it's literally just helping others so when I think of civic engagement it means there's recognizing that there's something that could be done better and then taking the action even the smallest step to make a change about it at work or within the organizations I volunteer for my biggest pet peeve is that when we have a problem people complain about it but then they don't have conversation or plans to make it any different and I strive to be 
someone who wants to be part of the solution. I see it a lot when I think about being civically engaged. And we've talked about this so much on a personal level, especially when we talk about how the change things at a micro level that is beyond politics as well. Politics, government, all of that stuff is one way to make a change in your local community, but it can start as close as the place you work, the groups we care about, or the things we do in our day-to-day and our careers and other obligations. And I personally feel like I do it often with the work I do within my department, in my past experiences as an employee resource group leader, and even as micro as the way my husband and I will make choices in our day-to-day about supporting local businesses over larger conglomerates wherever we can. Um, I guess another fun fact is I'm in Yelp Elite, which is a program where uh, local community writers for the Yelp app, like we support local businesses. The mantra there is to make sure that uh, like we support local, we do things of positive intent and like it helps with economic, local economic supporting businesses as well. That's fantastic. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast was because you have a particular knack for being able to create change within the organization that you're a part of. And it's an aspect of civic engagement that I don't think really gets enough notice outside of when big giant companies like Coke or Disney or the NCAA tournament make some sort of statement in response to something. But there's so much within a culture that can really affect everybody who's part of that community organization, what have you. Um, So I kind of want to talk about what is internal activism and, you know, in, in your knowledge, how many organizations or companies really promote that type of civic engagement? All right. Internal activism. So there's the internet's definition, which uh, Forbes says it's increasingly a factor to be taken in account by companies in some sectors where employees are no longer prepared simply to do what they're told at face value and instead believe that they need to act according to their own principles and that they'll refuse to carry out certain tasks if they believe that their personal values or ethics or morals are being breached. The HuffPost says that internal activism is a process that uses the skill of awareness to help people identify the change they wish to see in the world. When individual actions are created around that change, it can transform a singular effort into the community or global activism and shift the environment in which we live and work. And when I read those two, I think it's a marriage of both. Like when there's things we want to address in the organizations we're a part of, uh, issues that affect our day-to-day, and like especially if they're affecting the people within the organization, we as individuals can be the one to first step and say something. If there's a cause we care about, we can bring it into the day-to-day that we do. And especially with the organizations I work with, I think, organizations or companies that promote this type of engagement are more likely to see positive effects, not only like internally for organizational development, but it helps with external presence too, because the next generation of workers and change makers are going to look at organizations and companies and really look at what type of vibe are they giving off? Are they civically engaged? Do they care about the issues they care about? And it really makes 
a difference. It's going to continue to make a difference. So I don't know how many of them promote it. I'm happy that I work with a lot of organizations that do let me do this type of internal activism in my day-to-day or allow me and empower me to speak that wherever I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I don't know where you fall on the generational spectrum. I have a feeling you might be a gap between Gen Z and millennial, um, but Gen Z. Well, you know how that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how that is. Like there's, it depends on who you ask and what years. Uh, so I'm a 1994 baby. So like the end of the millennials, depending on who you ask, maybe beginning of Gen Z. Yeah. I use TikTok. I work with a lot of students who are absolutely Gen Z. So I try to put myself in both just because I feel I can understand a little both. And it definitely, yeah, it definitely makes a difference to be able to understand in my brain, like how each of the generations helps one another. Yeah. I, I, I feel that one for sure because what I'm noticing talking to some Gen Z folks and um, what they really want from the world and from corporate America, it's very much a factor in deciding how they show up at work, who they show up to work for. And a downstream effect that I think is going to be really transformative is how it's empowering millennials to finally step into that role too, because now they have backup compared to before it was us trying to fit into the mold that was set by the two generations before me being a millennial myself, um, but also in that weird gap space uh, where I'm at the beginning of the millennial time frame <laughs> oh absolutely and we've talked about this before i feel like sometimes i'm 10 years older than my actual age <laughs> um so one of those things in that framework that makes me think is what if there is a situation where there's something that needs to be done and the person wants to do something, but doesn't necessarily know that how it'll be received. Like, how do they go about it? What would you recommend in terms of them taking that first step to try and work within their organization to create change? It starts with just talking to one person, anybody. You'd be surprised how many people may resonate and also have those same thoughts or have feedback for you if you allow it and open up saying like hey I want feedback on this can you can I pick your brain can I bounce this off of you and over time like I've worked at my company for a little over six years now and I've become aware of the people in my network and my relationships who I can bounce those ideas off of. And the same goes with Delta Sigma Pi because I'm approached. Oh geez. I'm approaching 10 years of volunteering with Delta Sigma Pi. And like, I know who to go to now. And it started with just going to the people around me, whether it's uh, it was my district director, alumni advisor, 
uh nick who we know and love rest in peace like he was who i started with with any ideas for delta sigma pi and he taught me who do i talk to next or how do we make those changes and it really just starts with who's around you that you trust who you can confide in or even a friend to just say like hey what do you think of this idea and we should be surrounding ourselves with people uh who want to help us grow ideas definitely agree on that point do you feel that there are a you know is there some sort of causes that can be internally championed within an organization or is there really no limit it really can be anything honestly like it could be as something like that you do in your day-to-day like I work in supply chain. I've done procurement. I'm now in sourcing. Like there are times where, oh my gosh, this process sucks. What can we do to change it? It starts with even just that frustration of something that's being ineffective. Is there a way to change it? Who can I talk to to change an ineffective process or something that has been always done this way, which is, by the way, like if you hear someone say, oh, we've always done it this way, that's already like a flag that we should <laughs> say like, okay, well, what can we change about it? Amen um, other to that. Ex- yeah. Um, and other things include like policies and organizational handbooks, work steps instructions that might be outdated. And especially as I've done a lot of internal organization effectiveness projects at work and the organizations that I volunteer for, and, and I've even gotten to the point where I realized there's a study and a science to this. That's why my ma- one of my master's degrees is in organizational psychology or also known as industrial organizational psychology, because there's actually science, social science frameworks behind like being able to make these changes in organizations, which is really fascinating to me. And uh, understanding that and the science and framework behind it well, has really helped me be able to also get others to join us in the cause to make that change in that policy and it may sound like oh that's small but it's not like you could change everything on how we work for the years to come mm-hmm. that's fascinating uh, it's, uh is there any one example that sticks out of something from that organizational ecology that feels more important I'm about halfway through. I'm actually doing two master's degrees because I'm clearly don't have enough things to do in my life. Uh, but um, one of the classes that well, I have two classes or frameworks that stick out. There's one about just understanding that change and making change in organizations really requires that you have to have the people and your stakeholders and your organization have a buy into it. They need to f- not only feel like they were included in the process to make the change, but take it a step further to make sure that you were listening intently to make whatever changes they're asking for. Uh, it's There's a framework to say that to make change, you unfreeze everything, give all the feedback, get all the information and research and data you need, make the changes and then freeze it. And then it's a cycle to be able to do that again and again for continuous improvement. The second thing that I think sticks out with me from my formal education on organizational psychology is uh, Bowman and Deal's model for leadership and organizations, which says that we can look at those in four frames, which are the structural, human resource, political, and symbolic. 
structural meaning how of the change and organizational issues, task-oriented stuff, policies, goal-oriented, metric-focused. That's where people usually actually think first when we're talking about change. Like they go straight to the policies or the rules or like what can we do in the structure that we have today. Human resource, which is not necessarily the department, but looks at the needs of people and organization no, or job satisfaction to understand uh, leadership and how we make organizations more effective. Political and understanding organizational positions and that frame helps us understand that maybe there are different agendas or motivations going on above where we stand that and like the more that we can look at things in those different political frames can help us understand mutual interests and why there might be varying perspectives or agendas at play and symbolic, which is looking at an organization to drive a mutual sense of purpose, common vision, uh, to address organizational matters. Like if we're all marching towards the same goal, we're more likely to address our organization and how to be more effective. So I really think of, after I learned this stuff and like I write paper, we wrote papers on it and stuff. So I've thought about it so much more when I'm working with Delta Sigma Pi or working in some of the committees and other volunteer efforts that I do outside of that. And I joke a lot that I write a lot of papers about Delta Sigma Pi in my <laughs> master's degree, which it, it'll make our organization better. I promise. It's not slander. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. Uh, and one of the things that I know I found when I got involved in all of this work is everything, you know, our shared background here with Delta Sigma Pi and a lot of the machinations of the fraternity really translated into the work I did in party politics and the town committees, conventions, all that stuff. There's just so many similarities in how they both work that if you get involved and you want to make a difference, and you get involved in your organization or at your work, those skills will directly translate into your other communities as well, which I think is a really great point to touch on, especially considering what you said about the people and the stakeholders, understanding people's motivations. It all interplays whatever community you work with. And I know for you, you had a focus recently in uh, DEI, diversity, uh, equity, inclusion work. And I figured it would benefit to go a little bit deep there just to give kind of a contextual example of, you know, what you can do in a specific space and maybe provide a little bit of a definition for what that work is in general and how it's kind of changing because I know it is changing a little bit as the years go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, DEI, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, which it's such a complex space and I love it because it's ever-changing. That What's included in it may is so dynamic right now. I love it. It requires us to be flexible and grow and change. And even now I've heard lately that it's expanded to 
the acronym JEDI, J-E-D-I, which indicates justice, equity, diversion, and inclusion. I love it. Uh, I personally got into this work because as a first-generation college student, I'm a woman of color, Asian-American. Like, there's a lot of intersectionality I have (laughs) there, and I came from low-income, disadvantaged background, so... I personally got into it because I want there to be more representation and leadership. Uh, When I served on Delta Sigma Pi's board, a lot of Asian American members came to me saying, wow, like I know I can be up there now too, because I've seen you've been up there. And that resonates because why are people a color? Why are people from different backgrounds not in leadership positions? And we still have so much work to do. when defining it further for diversity, equity, inclusion in organizational spaces, it means creating a sense of belonging in the organizations that we're with and reducing the barriers for advancement of people with those different backgrounds, understanding different perspectives of, okay, what is not, or, or what is preventing us from having more diverse backgrounds Mm-hmm. at the table so it's reverse engineering the question and the root cause so that we can create more representation more diverse backgrounds and we're always more likely to be innovative when we have those diverse perspectives like if you ever see a company or organization flub and it's like why would they ever have like such an offensive commercial or offensive ad or marketing campaign well did was someone uh, from the group that was offended in the room to make the decision about that, that could have stopped you from doing that. Mm-hmm. So it that's like one very general example of that. Yeah. And why it's important to have it. 100, 100% agree. It's important. And I think that is a really germane example of how it can make a difference. And, you know, I know just from the work we've done together with the Civics Institute those different backgrounds and viewpoints really change how, you know, to approach or build a structure or program. So it's super, super important. And, you know, what, what is some lessons you've learned from this experience in terms of, either some obstacles that you've had to overcome that might be common. And one other thing I'd want to touch on is you mentioned intersectionality. If we could just give a little bit of information on what that means for people who may not fully understand intersectionality. Sure. So let me start with intersectionality since I just went through the DEI and Jedi definition. So intersectionality means that there are different factors of our each unique identity that make us privileged versus disadvantaged or like making us part of the whole. So I mentioned a few like first gen, I identify as a woman, Asian American, Asian, Chinese, uh, in those ways, like those are considered marginalized or disadvantaged backgrounds, but in other ways that are part of my identity, I could be more privileged. So for example, I 
have a college education. I'm more privileged in that section of my identity. I speak English fluently. That also is part of my identity. Uh, we just actually went through this with Delta Sigma Pi and we implemented uh, intersectionality identity ribbons at our last national convention. And it helped people realize that DEI is not just talking about race, gender, uh, whatever. It's really any part of your identity that is important to you and it impacts the way you work. If you're a parent or non-parent, that's another one too that uh, like can be part of one's identity. So it's the pieces of the multi-pointed star that is you. So everyone has a stake in diversity, equity, inclusion, the diversity of all kinds. And it's important to recognize. 100% agree. And I've never heard it defined, the, described as the multi-pointed star, but I love that framing and imaging of it. So thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that. I like that one. Absolutely. So in regards to lessons learned from being in the DEI space, and I do want to put out there, like, I am not professionally trained in the DEI space. I've done a lot of this work just from my own passion, the background that I have, my intrinsic desire to see and create that sense of belonging. I know what it's like to be excluded or feel like feel like I was disadvantaged because of my background. And I would hate for other people to feel that way, especially if I have a say or a way to be able to make sure that we could prevent someone from feeling like they didn't belong and excluded. So some things that I've learned just from being in this space, stepping up and also doing the education and doing my own self-education and reading articles, listening to people directly affected who have different backgrounds. Uh, First is just, yeah, that active listening. You want to listen to the people who might have a different background than you and actively listen. Like, don't try to interject and relate all the time because we have a tendency to do that as humans, which it can be helpful, but not all the time. So active listening is really important in doing internal activism with diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, Relationships are also super important and like for in my career or in the organizations I work with, like a lot of my success has been being able to build relationships with others and genuinely, not just for the sake of making change or whatever future reasons I may need to reach out to them, but just genuinely building friendships and relationships to, because I really value them. And then they are, like I mentioned earlier, they are the people that I go to when I have ideas and we kind of, we talk and it's all, productive and if someone has an idea or suggestion in the organizations I work with I'd love to be the person they go to and help make that reality understanding organizations is also something I've learned like I talked about Bowman and Deal's four frames like that has been powerful and just shifting my perspective because I could be looking at it from a very people-based because I'm a very people-based leader uh but I want you to understand there's other frames that factor into why decisions and how decisions are made or someone may be more data focused that I need to go look at it that way. So just being flexible with understanding like what's 
the motivator for your stakeholders. And that also leads into, I think, one of the biggest things, especially in DEI, that initially for me in the beginning of me doing this, especially for employee resource groups, uh, was just how do you get buy-in? And the buy-in question is, what's the risk if we don't do this? It's one thing to say, like, oh, this is why DEI and culture and organizational effectiveness are important. But it can easily take the backseat priority when there's other things going on that are more numbers-based or cost-based or they seem like they're more important. To make DEI a priority, we put numbers to it. In addition to highlighting why it's good, it's also what's the risk if we don't do it. And I've highlighted some of those before, especially with the changing scape of this next generation is going to want, is going to affiliate organizations and companies with their ability to have a strong DEI presence at their company from everything from representation to culture to advancement of everyone, regardless of their background. Uh, and especially if there's a way to measure those benefits. I took a training recently that actually put numbers behind if you an employee leaves, it costs this much to of resources and capital to train them. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what we're talking about. In Delta Sigma Pi, our latest white paper on diversity, equity, inclusion highlighted what the risks are if we don't continue to put a priority to diversity, equity, inclusion. And we absolutely are. It's highlighting again that like these are the calculated risks that we are taking if we don't do it. So this is why we put priority in there. And finally, just having a great team behind you. I could not do this all by myself. I have great people behind me when I lead teams and committees at work and Delta Sigma Pi. Like it all, it's a team effort, which is why all of that kind of meshes with the relationships and being surrounded by talent, supportive, trustworthy people that are willing to call me out if an idea is bad and like that's important oh yeah because piece is so important you don't need yes men or yes people all around you and uh like it's a natural curse like i learned it a lot when i was sat on delta sigma pi's national board that i could come up with a ton of ideas but i also had people telling me why this was a good idea why this is a bad idea why uh, and who to turn to if I wanted to further an idea. So that was all important. And I'm glad I've been surrounded by that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to add one one thing that I feel is an important aspect, especially for my white cisgendered folks like myself, is to take the time to hear what's being said and process it because it's going to challenge your status quo and a lot of things that have just been built into how you grew up and it's going to feel like an attack or it's going to feel pressured and that's okay sit with it and kind of unpack it because there's a lot of unlearning that needs to be done to push the DEI space forward mm-hmm. and actually that's why I'm a huge fan of reverse mentoring, which we all know about mentoring. Like you want to mentor someone, help them grow. Reverse mentoring is also being able to learn from that mentor-mentee relationship. Yes, you're the mentor, but you can learn from that mentee too. And we encourage a lot where I work, like opportunities to mentor, have someone who's like 
in a higher or executive leadership position or manager with direct reports, supervisor position to mentor someone who has a different background than them so that they can learn from them too. And they, and they also mutually benefit because they're learning from you from your years of experience. Mm -hmm. So it's this mutually beneficial relationship where you can learn from a different perspective and uh, really get to know something that you weren't a, a background that you may not have known much about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I never heard it framed that way, but like you and I are a perfect example of when we met, you were a freshman in college. I was probably like five or six years out of college and it was very much a mentor mentee relationship. And now I probably learn more from you than you learn from me because of that this non-transactional genuine relationship that we built so that's mm -hmm. i still learn from you don't discount yourself i still learn from you i am more civically engaged uh from a local politics standpoint thanks to you so don't discount that and it's gonna continue and that's the best part about our friendship and relationship exactly too. it becomes symbiotic which is what i love and thank you for that compliment how can you we touched on a little bit about how to like start if you're someone who isn't an organization and you don't know how to push this stuff forward but how do you do it when you're not in a position of power or authority within an organization absolutely and totally highlighting again you don't need a title to make a change and this even started back when I was a college student in Delta Sigma Pi. I was never elected to any of the collegiate officer positions, no matter how many times I ran. Like I was always appointed later if someone dropped out. But I gained a positive reputation for knowing Delta Sigma Pi and its policies front and back, being dedicated and reliable when I did serve in office or had a role outside of the collegiate chapter and just having that intrinsic motivation for doing what's best for the fraternity in our chapter. So having a positive reputation was more important than having a title. And that reputation was definitely more powerful when it time came time to find someone to step in need or when I did get elected to serve on the national board after I graduated. Like it's always been my philosophy that I, you don't need a title to make a change because it really just starts with what can you do in your day-to-day -day or your personal life. And that's tying back to the, my personal view of what civic engagement is. It's all, and I do this today when I share and empower my constituents in New England. Uh, so I'm the New England Regional Vice President. I serve uh, about 800 college students. I'm trying to remember all the numbers. 800 college students and 11 different schools and two alumni chapters. So I try to share and empower with them that they're more powerful than me. And if there's something that they're aligned in that they want to change about our fraternity, it's more powerful for them to unify, share those ideas, write a recommendation and bring it to uh, our council meetings and go through that legislative process than if I did it by myself. And I will wholeheartedly support them and guide them along the way. And that's the most powerful piece to empower people 
around me to do it. I have a title, but they not being national officers are more powerful than me. Absolutely. And my goal, my goal is that we will see a number of recommendations from them this year, because like we've talked about these ideas, I'm prepping them over the next few months and they're empowered because they believe in their idea and believe in themselves. I work too. Like I'm not a supervisor. I'm an individual contributor. I'm not a VP or executive, Uh, but I've volunteered a lot in the employee resource groups since I, since I started at the company. And for those who don't know, employee resource groups are like joining a club or organization that you relate to or connect to Mm -hmm. when you're at work. And like, I started just going to those events when I started at the company and it was great because I just got to meet other people who had like the same background as me and um, we were able to work together as a whole to make those changes and I eventually learned how to take those changes to executives if I wanted to and helping others contribute to that Um, and I'm generally someone who just brings up ideas and knows who to go to in order to start the conversation but I didn't get there without just being in the spaces getting up and going to those events because you could go work and go home but I don't do that Mm -hmm. uh and I've gotten a lot of work mentors and coaches who I've developed relationships with to bounce ideas off of and yeah I end up leading a lot of those changes and it's how I've gotten that reputation but it's a good reputation if you ask me that I want to be someone to make change and be able to help with that and help others to do so absolutely I think that's one of the best reputations you can have and I think you highlight again on the relationship building aspect of internal activism and it actually like you talk and made me think of a story from a mutual friend of ours that went through the succeed faster program with us and she was telling me once about how when she was an intern as like a sophomore in college you know she was working in like the intern rotation program but because she was the intern they were more open with talking about what like the problems and issues were and she pieced together that like these three different departments are having the same problem so I was able to like push forward here's a solution for you because you're all struggling with it and I think that's a great example of you don't have to be in a position of power if you're paying attention and if you're building those relationships as you've been highlighting this entire time mm-hmm. and be open to like even just suggesting it if you have a manager or supervisor and in your next one-on-one conversation maybe bring up like hey i noticed this between like these different departments i work with what do you think about that is that a problem mm-hmm. that keeps happening and like see what their thoughts are and if and like i love that i have those conversations really often with my manager and we both are on the same wavelength of like yeah let's go make a change and make it happen make things more efficient that's fantastic So we've touched a bunch on Delta Sigma Pi. So I figure now is a good time to kind of go a little bit deeper there. And for those who have been listening to the podcast for a while, I bring up Delta Sigma Pi 
a lot because they've been a big part of my background, but they are an international business fraternity that is really focused on students and connecting them to the larger world to make better citizens, better business people. And they have a very overarching national structure that Jen can go into a lot more detail if it's needed because she worked on the national board as their collegiate of the year in 2016. Okay. 2016. Um, you've touched and done work on, civic engagement from a couple different angles how does it feel different the internal engagement work at a corporation compared to a volunteer organization Mm -hmm. it's actually interesting because like i work for a corporation and even within the corporation our employee resource groups function like volunteer work because we do it on top of our day-to-day jobs too uh so like when you're talk when I talked about policies, workstep instructions, pro- processes that could change, when I think about that on the corporation standpoint, it can be a little more nuanced to navigate because like there's a little bit of red tape and like every corporation I think has that. But it's asking like instead of trying to change your whole corporation of like especially if you have more than like 5,000 employees, <laughs> at your corporation like instead of asking what can i do to change the entire company you could change like at a micro level of okay like what can i change in my employee resource group community my local department and like one of the departments i recently worked for we have 30 people my direct team was five people and that's more manageable to change like if you're making you can make larger change if you end up eventually bringing things up a chain and like everyone aligns on uh that a change is needed but there's definitely a lot more nuance of like okay where does budget come from can you you have to get approvals here and there to let a project get started or uh there might be additional stakeholders that get added along the way so like it takes a lot of patience to navigate but also it echoes again the importance of understanding, okay, who do you go to? What's the process? Did you follow the process? Because a lot of times people try to change something and we skip a step in the process. So a lot of steps and I've learned to be patient (laughs) in those and I've worked there for a while and uh, like it takes a science and understanding and those four frames again, like just to understand uh, how do we go about making change? And when people are aligned, we can make pretty big things happen. Uh, for volunteer organization, and like I speak, my brain just gravitates towards Delta Sigma Pi when I talk about it. It's a different lens because we are very volunteer-centered in how we operate and influence. So if we want to make a change, it's because we really want to make the change. Uh, and like it, it, we are, especially in my current role as regional vice president, I feel more empowered to run my local conglomerate in the way that I want to and empower others to also take leadership roles and do the changes they want to make so that we grow overall and drive engagement. Uh, Like we're not paid to do this. So we really have to be motivated. And I think that 
drives a lot of the changes we want to see because I think I always get so inspired when we have our national conferences or we make big changes in the fraternity because none of us get paid to do this, but we all care so much about the purpose and what we want to get as outcomes that we end up doing it. We end up having at least 200 plus people every two years agree on these changes and then go make them happen. And we have more oversight and like oversight and control over our policies on how we do that, or we change a policy so that we can make the changes that we need to do. Just to clarify, when you say we, you mean the members of the organization? Uh, Because every two years, we have a national convention where we go and ratify changes that are brought up at the locally geographical legislative meetings. And without getting too deep into exactly like the processes, because we'll be here for a long time, uh, it just means that every two years, our members, they send delegates from each chapter, each alumni chapter to agree and vote and or disagree to but generally vote to uh make the changes that we want to or don't want to make and the voice our concerns and every all the leaders are there to listen and uh help guide us along the way so to synthesize the the two the two aspects the corporation the volunteer they both have you know, different sets of frameworks and sign-offs that need with corporate obviously being much more structured and hierarchical than the volunteer organization. The members have a larger say, so you can actually get human buy-in first to push things from the bottom up with a lot more ease. Is that a fair synthesis? I would say so. And it's not because one is better than the other. It's more like how many people in a structure, how many levels there might be in approvals or stakeholder buy-in or all of that. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's more condensed in Delta Sigma Pi. Like we have, we have a national convention every two years to go talk about the things we want to change and have, those conversations i would love if we did that at work because <laughs> that'd be kind of cool to hear like all right like convention with the whole company what do we need to change and you know like maybe it's not the whole company but again it's like in our department do we, we have an all hands can we use that all hands to talk about the changes can we have staff meetings to talk about the changes and have our managers flow that up for the chains of leadership like there's ways to manage it and one is not better than the other it really depends on like the type of organization or what company you work for. And uh, and then again, understanding like, what does it take to make change in your organization? Study it, talk to people. Like, does it take five years or does it take one year? Like just kind of asking around to understand, okay, what's this timeline? Am I going to be patient enough to sit through uh, five years <laughs> to make a change? And not saying either my job or Delta Sigma Pi does that, but like, uh, just kind of understanding the background. What's the precedent? All those things will factor in. I think understanding the timeline is critical because, you know, and you've heard me say this ad nauseum, but I believe it takes three years to really see meaningful change in anything 
you're working towards in life, whether changing organization, changing personal health habits, what have you. Um, but organizations themselves can alter those timelines because they might have structures in place. And, you know, I think understand that also informs you of how and where to push. Because if you know it takes five years, but the change needs to occur in six months, you know, something that would be a great example in Delta Super Pi is how they had to respond to COVID and taking what was traditionally in-person events every semester for at least a decade plus to virtual events. And that is something that couldn't go through the normal two-year convention. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I'm glad you brought up the timeline piece. What, what are the causes or a cause that you championed in your work with Dubs Single Pie and, you know, maybe give a little bit of context on what the process was like? Yeah, so I did talk about diversity, equity, inclusion earlier. I am on Delta Sigma Pi's national task force for diversity, equity, inclusion, helping them out there. And, but on a more overarching scale, like regardless of whatever role I take, I'm also generally championing driving civic engagement in our organization there. So while sitting on a, as a voting board member, you mentioned I was the 2016 National Collegian of the Year and uh, diving into more what that role was, my role was to take the thousands of college age members that are our constituents and organization and understanding like when I, I and my another collegiate voice on the board vote, like what are they looking for? How do we voice the members who are doing our day-to-day operations and helping recruit and bring in new members? What would they like to see or how what is their perspective when we're making these voting decisions and it's always key that been it has always been key we have input from our student constituents in making decisions and from our last national convention it's more prevalent than ever that the collegiate delegates want their voices heard it's why in my role as a reno vice president for the new england area i champion that i want their voices heard. I'm transparent, available, willing to answer questions and share more in depth than the average RVP, like what we're discussing. And when I say transparent, it usually means that I share my personal previous experiences with them on how did we get here? I may know more than the average student, so I'm going to tell them, like, how did we get here to talk about this decision? Like, at the national convention or letting members of my region know about where the resources to get educated on these topics. And I'm so proud of the new England region students. Cause a lot of them were the ones that were able to be informed and prepared to speak during business sessions because we had that philosophy and that we championed that. And any student that was not as confident or they wanted to learn more after the conventions. So I feel so proud of them for that. And uh, they're so motivated. And that's the my driving motivation, because I know that they have what it takes to make the change. And I want to champion that to help them with it. And I especially wanted to champion innovation in this in our organization, because 
uh, I always bring up the question, okay, do, what don't you like about our organization? Okay, do you have an idea of how to make it better? What would you like to see? And I do it in a coaching way so that they find the answer themselves. Mm-hmm. And like, I ask them, okay, like, if you like this, do you know how to submit that? If not, I'll walk you through it. And I can't change everything, even with a grand officer title, but I know we can do it together. And I champion that uh, through having diverse perspectives and being able to educate people on what it means to be engaged in Delta Sigma Pi, we're all going to be better. And one of the things I personally love about Delta Sigma Pi and why it's, it was it's great to volunteer after graduation is because I've learned all these skills, like how you said earlier on how it translates to the work that you've done in civic engagement. Like I feel definitely more prepared to do it because like this organization is built that way. Mm-hmm. A thousand percent agree. And there's so many cross skills that you can learn. You know, I remember clearly I was in a job review once when I was with the CPA firm and the partner reviewing me said, you have the soft skills that can't be learned. And I'm like, I've learned all of them through Delta Sigma Pi and volunteering and serving in different roles. And, you know, I mentioned that story just to highlight, again, the importance of how work in one space can translate to all the different spaces that you are a part of. Nothing is siloed in your personal life. It can all translate. And a lot of the times it's really helpful to have that disruptive view of space one going into space two. So for example, you know, bringing fundraising ideas from Delta Sigma Pi into ways that you can fundraise for your nonprofit um, that you're on the board for, which is something I have had the chance to, to share. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I love that you said is teaching them how to do it themselves. And I love that aspect of the work that you're doing with Delta Sigma Pi. Hey everybody, Patrick coming from a day after recording this interview and sorry to pull the ripcord on you real fast, but this is the end of this episode. I know it's very jarring. Jen and I recorded for probably an hour and a half. We were having a really great conversation and rather than go super long with an episode, I wanted to split it into two parts. So the next part, we'll pick up where we left off and finish our conversation on internal activism. Hope you enjoyed the interview so far. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civics Undaunted podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, can you please head on over to podchaser.com and leave a rating or review? These ratings make a big difference and really help get our podcast noticed. So it would be much appreciated if you could go on over there. Civics Undaunted is a production of the Civics Institute. 
and it is produced and edited by Katie Kacharski. Please visit www.thecivicsinstitute.com to learn more. Thank you again for listening, and have a great day.